you've just got to make sure you show people the milestones along the way because they're not going to wait three or five years for results. So again, it was that part that I talked about about what you're going to see. Look, you know, if we do this for so long, after six months, we will see an increase in web traffic. We'll see a decrease in cost per lead, for example. We believe that to solve the biggest, most complex marketing problems, you have to blur the lines between intuition and reason, imagination and logic, the theoretical and the practical. Join us as we reimagine problem solving with leading B2B marketers on B2B Marketing Solved. We're your hosts, Richard and Benedict. Welcome to B2B Marketing Solved. And today we're going to be looking at that difficult challenge of how do you balance short-term business needs with longer-term brand building? And today I'm delighted to say that I am joined by David Turner, CMO of Iris. Now, David, do you just want to give a very, very quick introduction to who you are just to help with the audience and scene setting? Sure. Yes. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. I have been in uh, B2B marketing, software marketing, to be honest for pretty much all of my career, 30 years, um, working for UK software companies like Coda, European companies like Unit4, and then American companies like NetSuite. Uh, always been building teams, uh, usually high-growth companies, where I've been building teams globally. And I've been at Iris Software for just nine months, which um, seems like a lifetime, but actually isn't so long. So you were one of those people that joined a company during the pandemic. So how did that go from a virtual onboarding perspective? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I didn't meet the executive team face-to-face for the first, I think it was about six months. So yeah, it was the interview process was a lot of, I think I had about nine interviews. Like They wanted me to meet everyone. And obviously, because you couldn't do that kind of face-to-face thing, it was lots of kind of scheduled Zoom calls, which was... Um, pretty exhausting. But uh, but actually, it meant by the time I did join, I did feel like I kind of knew everybody. I can imagine. Nine interviews is extremely arduous. Well, hopefully yeah. today won't be quite as exhausting as the interview process. Uh, we should definitely do our do our best. So as I mentioned, just at the top of the, not the call, the podcast even, we're going to be looking at that challenge of balancing short-term business needs with longer-term brand building. And just kick us off, I just wanted to sort of frame the question a little bit. I think you're probably familiar with Burnett and Fields and some of the work that they've done, which is looking at what that balance is between sales activation and brand building. Now, within B2C, it's quite sort of commonly accepted that you need to wait towards brand building over short-term activation. And it's around that sort of 60-40 equation. But by their estimation, brand building is still very, very important within B2B. The equation is slightly different, but it is still probably parity in terms of 50% of the budget and marketing activity should be brand building, 50% should be on sales activation. Now, now, firstly, I think my first question would be is, what is your perspective on that particular ratio that I've just mentioned? And the second part to the question, how well understood within B2B marketing do you feel that that recommendation is? Yeah, so I think in my experience, I think today, probably that kind of 50-50 split in terms of sort of spend is probably about right. You know, clearly brand building tends to take a lot of a lot of resources, a lot of money. So it's probably about 50% of budget. Demand gen is probably more 60 or 70% of your team's activity, maybe even more because, you know, there's just a lot more involved. That's a lot more reactive and, and in, you know, building campaigns and carrying those out. Whereas the brand stuff you'll kind of put in place, maybe working with agencies, third parties and, and sort of that a lot of that will run 
But I think today, increasingly, there's a huge focus on that demand gen bit and a real pressure on marketing, you know, the marketing teams to be building demand generation machines and, and mm. really kind of delivering volume leads to the sales team. And in your opinion, where is that pressure coming from? Is it coming from the marketing community themselves or is it coming from board level? Uh, it's coming from sales teams. It's coming from the commercial <laughs> kind of side of the operation. I mean, having said that, you know, look, 30 years in marketing, I've never had a sales team that's has said we've got enough leads. So <laughs> so you're kind of feeding an insatiable monster there. But but I think that's desire to be I mean, clearly this but you know, a lot of companies have got very aggressive growth targets. You know, when I was at NetSuite, very much, you know, in a high growth mode there from a quite a large base as well, which put a lot of pressure on. But, you know, even smaller companies as well, there's that constant pressure on growing the, the top line and the feeling that that is marketing's job. I think particularly in SaaS. It's a very marketing driven, you know, the idea is your expensive sales resources shouldn't really be spending their time hunting. They should just be, you know, following up, following up leads. That's obviously the ideal kind of uh, model. And I think, you know, working at Iris, which is a private equity owned company, there's a desire for high growth and also consistent growth. I think, you know, companies are looking, boards are looking for predictability and they want that predictability to be driven by marketing, I think. And on that note of predictability then, how do you manage the conversation with different people internally around short-term gains in terms of pipeline generation versus long-term gains through building the brand? Again, it's been a constant conversation, you know, through my career, I think, because, you know, brand building looks expensive and also it's harder to predict outcomes. You know, if you put a hundred pounds into demand gen, campaign you can you know you've got a kind of you've got some metrics there for historically where you can say look that you know that 100 pounds is going to drive 500 pounds of revenue or whatever you put 100 pounds into a brand you don't always have those firm metrics that you can hang your hat on and say it's going to deliver that but having said that you can point to history and you can point to outcomes you know we've just done a big brand building exercise Within Iris, we have an education division, which is almost new. We sort of bought our way into the education market. No one knew, knew Iris. We did a, a, you know, six months of really heavy brand building. And demand gen was kind of pretty steady. And then suddenly, as that campaign really came to fruition, suddenly, you know, October saw a 40% jump in, in uh, opportunity creation. And then suddenly the next month, an even bigger jump. And it's, it's like it's, it's, you can't directly link it but you know it becomes quite predictable that investment that you've made in brand building kicks out an uptick significant uptick in opportunity creation not always the problem is it doesn't always come through marketing of course when it's a result of brand it's just people you know coming up to your stand at an exhibition or calling someone or you know seeking you out on the internet and as a marketer how do you deal with that internally with the business? Obviously, technically, it has come through marketing, but it's very difficult to demonstrate that. Yeah, and that's a constant discussion. And believe me, I'm having those discussions right now. And I bet every marketer is. You know, I always have had that. You know, look, if you want to be purist about brand building, you, you measure. Yeah? And, you know, I think if you follow the sort of B2C model, you know, I think it's like 5 to 10% of your campaign, of your spend, goes into measurement. You know, measure at the beginning, unprompted awareness and, and, and whatever in the marketplace against amongst your kind of target audience. And then, you know, at stages through that campaign or that activity, you'd measure the same again. In B2B, 
I'll be honest, we don't always tend to do that. I think it's hard enough having a conversation with the board or, or your, your bosses or whatever to say you want to spend half a million, whatever, on brand building to then say, actually, and I want to spend 10% of that on measurement is kind of can be quite difficult because people don't always aren't always that invested in it. Where I have done it, though, in, in the past, absolutely, it makes sense. You know, years ago, very, very early on in my career, I did a big, huge brand building activity with Coda, which was a relatively unknown UK accounting software company. And we, we went really big, got in a big kind of advertising uh, agency, did some big full page ads that went into the Sunday Times and into the, the FT, actually, which, crikey, in those days, the price of a full page ft ad could buy your house in the north of england um, <laughs> yeah I know. but we did measurement beforehand and you know our, our unprompted awareness amongst cfos of companies about 50 million turnover was less than 25 percent. it's about 23 percent, i think and after nine months of doing that we were over 75 percent. so it absolutely had a tangible impact and if you can show those sort of results fantastic and that's exactly the sort of the results you want to be able to show. And I think that we've almost touched upon one of the sort of the core problems which exists around brand building in B2B. And that's actually proving the value of that investment. And you just sort of quite rightly sort of touched upon that almost vicious cycle of the board not wanting to invest the money in measurement and therefore there's no metrics to actually prove the value of it so this is almost i think we've almost got to our like first big problem to solve now you spoke really really well there about how it has been successful in your past career but in the here and now given the sort of the conversations that are going on within b2b companies what would be your recommendations on how you can win the argument to get that extra bit of investment to put into measurement i think yeah, it's an irony because, as I said, they, you, know, you get pushback on that sort of, you know, why, how come you're spending 50000 on research or something for your half million campaign? But, you know, at the end of it, you know damn well that they're going to say, well, what, was, what did I get for that spend, mm. you know? And the answer is, well, I can't show you unless, you know, unless we do measurement. I think there are probably different options nowadays for that. So, so there's the classic, as I say, you, do, you commission your own research and you do that, you know, brand research. And that is going to probably cost you something like, 30 to 50,000 pounds or something to do it properly, depending on the sector and your target audience and all of that. But there are also other options. You know, there might be some sort of syndicated research that you can be part of. So, for example, you know, I know in, in some of the sectors we operate in at the moment, there are publishers in that, those markets who do do kind of syndicate or, you know, when I say syndicated, like group research with a number of vendors where they'll do, you know, they'll, they'll do 10, 20 questions into the market, which might be around technology buying trends and, and all that sort of stuff. But you can also, they will either will have questions in there, or maybe if you buy into it, you can get a question asked, which is around, you know, brand awareness, you relative to your competitors. If you can do some of that before and after, then fantastic. And that might be a cheaper option, you know. I think that one of the challenges I think you, you said is that it does cost money, you know, more whatever it is, to do it formally to track it. So for those B2B marketers that want to win the sort of the battle, if you like, and get that investment in brand building, they aren't going to be able to sort of provide those sort of like hard metrics. What would your suggestions be about how they can go about building the business case in the first place, but also demonstrating the value that that brand building has delivered to the business once that bit of activity is complete? Yeah, I think in terms of sort of the business case for brand building, mm. I think you've got to talk about 
it's all about demand gen at the end of the day. You know, you've got to, if marketing doesn't help drive sales, has saved drive revenue, then what are we there for? So that's clearly a key output. I think you, you then got to think about, okay, so what drives that uh, revenue or those, those mm. sales and its leads? Okay, where are those leads going to come from? And, you know, some of them are going to come from, if you've got no brand awareness and you've got no kind of inbound activity today, then it's going to come from you spending money, you know, and it's mm. going to be expensive per lead. But you're going to have some sources which might be from website, you know, unprompted kind of traffic, organic traffic that comes to the website. It might be telephone, you know, inbound telephone calls. It might be inbound uh, email or whatever. There'll be a number of measures that you can, uh, it might even be just like the number of people who turn up at a stand at, mm. at an expo or something, you know. And maybe if you can't invest in in that kind of research, then I think you need to be probably quite brave and put some predictions on those. Yeah. So, you know, look, today we get 10,000 visits a, a month from in the website and we get 500 form fills or whatever i believe if we do this brand building you know we can increase that by 20 percent or whatever in six months and, and you know sort of put some try to put some targets in there for all of those kind of inbound uh, particularly sort of organic type uh, channels that you believe are going to be positively influenced by brand and then do that in terms of building the business case for for brand building what i would do is involve everyone as many people as you can in the organization so if you talk to sales they will always tell you that people don't know us. They don't know us enough. You know, when I was at NetSuite, which was God Almighty, one of the biggest cloud software companies in in B two B. You know, been around for twenty years. Sales guys were constantly com- complaining that nobody knew who we were. Then we became part of Oracle, and they still complained they didn't know. Yeah, people didn't know who we were. <laughs> well, then they complained that actually they thought we were Oracle and blah blah blah. But you know, so get them on your side and get your, your sales directors or whatever to sort of back you up on the fact that you know the sales team are, are struggling with with getting over maybe getting through the door because they're not getting because of, of the lack of brand awareness you know, versus your two main competitors or something so get sort of other people around the, around the commercial team i think to back you up i think that's probably important they will always kind of be fairly pro brand but like i say i think if you can put if you can demonstrate to the board that you're not just going to go and spend on advertising in eft because it's great for your cv but that that will have an impact on brand awareness, and then that will have an impact on inbound demand, and then and therefore on on uh, sales and revenue. I think if you can map that process out, and then you're going to have to stick your neck out on the, on the block and kind of you know I say put those predictions in and then run with it, and you know hopefully you will see at least some of those indicators move in the right direction. They may not move enough. They may not move exactly as you predicted because they never do. But I think it's that bravery, I think it's really important. I, I like the idea about being brave, actually just, as you say, putting your neck on the block. And then also, I think that that whole point around building a coalition, which is almost what you're describing in terms of getting salespeople to provide that anecdote, you know, them to sort of represent their pain points and problems and how brand building can solve that, I think is really, really compelling. Definitely. And, ju- and just on that, uh, think about the results, actually keeping those sort of looking for those anecdotes as well can be important. Yeah. You know, just because you can try and measure the impact, but especially in the first, you know, we all know brand building is a long-term game. It's probably a easily eighteen months to two years to really impact your brand seriously. But but you know, you want to get some impact, some sort of indication that it's working within ideally six months. You know, to to keep the faith. Those anecdotes can be important. You know, yeah. sales sales team who, who say to you, "Oh, I talked to so and so, and yeah, he's you know, he saw our adverts in X Y Z or." 
I literally had this with the, the education advertising we had recently where a senior influencer who's also the chairman of a multi-academy trust kind of said to, to our PR lady, oh, the whole market seems to be talking about Irish these days. And it's like, wow, okay, I like that. So I made sure that, that kind of went in. Yeah. You know, and that's not it's not an isolated one. I've got a number of anecdotes. And that helps. Okay. It's not okay, it's not fully measurable, but actually some of those anecdotes can really help to back up that case along with some metrics that you can hopefully show are going in the right direction. Absolutely. Some marketers think that their most successful campaigns are the one where the CEO has heard about them, right? Anecdotally. <laughs> yeah, and do you know what? The other <laughs> The other downside, the flip side of that, if you like, is that thing when the CEO, you know, you're running a massive kind of direct pay-per-click campaign or whatever, and you know them, or the CEO go on at night on their, on their laptop or their phone and Google your name and it won't come up, you know, didn't see your adverts. And it's like, well, actually, the reality is today, Google is so damn smart that they shouldn't be seeing it because they're not <laughs> your target audience. If you, you know, using all the AI tools and everything Google gives you, no, they shouldn't be seeing us. CFOs in companies of, you know, or whatever, or educators in the right market should, are the ones who should be seeing your ads. But yeah, that can be an interesting conversation as well. Okay. <laughs> I remember slightly off topic, but we, uh, we ran a campaign once targeting a hundred different individuals, a paid campaign. I don't know if you remember mm. this. And um, uh, one of the individuals we were targeting were CEOs of smaller businesses, but their namesake was a very popular celebrity in the US. And we were running the campaign for a week without tracking the, the analytics and the minimum spends. And then we looked at the analytics ah. and realized we spent two and a half thousand pounds targeting this one person. And it wasn't that person at all. It was uh, some very famous actor in the, in the US. So um, <laughs> yeah, don't do that, basically. Don't Google yourself. <laughs> On that note, actually, it's, it's quite um, a pertinent point. So uh, you've obviously worked in a business that was pretty unknown. You've worked in a business that was acquired by a very large brand, and now you're working in a business that's acquiring other brands. How has that career progression, trajectory, what have you learned about brand building based on the fact that you've worked at all of these different types of brands in different places? I think, I mean, just almost taking that in, in order, when I was at Coda, which was a, I mean, it was a, it was a global software company actually, but very specialist and therefore not that well known, even in its home market. I think I learned the power of doing brand properly. And actually, at that time, and this was back in the nineties, early nineties, was looking to B two C because that's where actually where the the real brand building activity happened. And at the time, the trend in in B two B advertising was, especially for accounting software, loads of text because you had to tell everyone everything about your product you had to have pictures of money because it was accounting software and oh you're international so you had to have pictures of different money you know you'd have yen and dollars and whatever every advert was like that honestly and and we went completely the other way you know just thinking about the fact that the people who are buying you are also reading the sunday times and the financial times and seeing being exposed to adverts for bmw and coca-cola and all that completely different and so we went down a completely different line and did a a consumer style advert which had six words on it stunning photography i just had our logo on it i think and then six words an accounting software for the world i think it was and uh yeah showing that to the board they were i mean getting out through the board was really tough because it was like but it doesn't say anything about our product and it doesn't you know it doesn't tell them anything. it's like ah but it worked and so that sort of taught me that brand building you have to do it you can't do it in isolation of your b2b your little b2b bubble that you work in because the people you sell to 
are also, like I said, buying BMWs and seeing consumer adverts and watching television. You know, they're exposed to all sorts of different brand messages and brand styles of brand building. And you have to kind of take that into account and not just look within your own sector. When I was at Unit 4, actually, which was uh, a, a Dutch company, a bit like a bit like Iris, buying a lot of brands, they had 40 different brands around the world and they'd never renamed them. They would buy a company in a country, they would do whatever they needed to do with it and then sort of let it go on its own. And so you had this disparate group of, of um, brands. Nobody even internally knew they were part of one big company. They just felt they were part of a 200-person company in Spain or a 50-person company in Singapore. And I kind of came in and I said, look, we could make something bigger out of this. And I think that what that, you know, if we could rebrand this and create a single brand globally, we would create something that is bigger than the sum of its parts. And it took me two years to persuade them to do it. Um, the board were very, very conservative. And uh, anyway, we did it. Uh, the CEO actually just basically said, if you can win everybody over, you can do it. And that's what I had to do for, for nearly two years was win over country managers and get them all on site. And when we did it, hugely painful you know everybody internally gets emotionally attached to their existing brand which is a lesson i've always learned you're always more attached to your brand than anyone else's and you think the impact of changing it will be bigger than anyone else does and uh, we changed it three months later internally everyone had kind of almost forgotten it had blown over it's like wow we're now part of one brand unit four globally and the biggest single kind of and it's anecdotal but the tangible result for me was on gartner because we were multiple ERP, company, ERP companies and, and accounting software and that. Gartner had never reported on us because they just didn't know we existed. And suddenly we were on Gartner's big ERP quadrant as the sixth biggest ERP company in the world. So we'd suddenly gone from nowhere to become a major player just by changing the brand. Nothing else had changed. We still had 140 different products. But, you know, so the impact of brand on creating a, a real entity and a force in the market I think that was kind of what I learned there. Coming, I mean, at, at, uh, well, coming forward really to Iris, I guess. Iris is an interesting one because we're, yeah, we're private equity owned. We're buy, we buy roughly, I think they average about 10 companies a year, but actually we slowed down during COVID or they did before I joined and we've been accelerating since. So that had been actually about every three weeks at the moment we've been buying companies. And before I came, there was a sort of religious fervor with branding, which was you take the company, you change its name to Iris, whatever the brand is, and you just completely, you know, irisify it and then stick it into our website. But to be honest, was looking a bit like an Argos catalogue of, of brands. It's quite hard to find a lot of brands on there. And I've stopped that actually <laughs> and I've changed it. And what I've concluded there is Iris is a very corporate brand. We've been around for 40 years. We serve big accounting firms and medium-sized accounting firms and have done and we're very solid and we're very reliable and dependable. So for any of the big corporate products, that's absolutely right. Let's call it Iris because it, it gets it gains that sort of um, the aura of respectability and compliance and dependability. But for some of the SaaS brands we're buying, we're buying some small, really exciting kind of software as a service brands that are aimed at small accounting practices or small SME companies who've never heard of Iris. Slapping this big kind of corporate brand on it doesn't really help. In fact, quite the opposite. I think it, it sort of it takes away all of that exciting, fresh, challenging, innovative sort of uh, side of the SaaS brand. So, so what I'm now doing is, is a, a literally a double-layered kind of strategy, which is we have a corporate branding strategy, 
for the big corporate products. And then we have a challenger brand strategy for the smaller products where we either just keep the brand with a buy iris kind of uh, strap line in small text or, uh, or even don't add the brand at all where appropriate. And that just allows us to have different brand characteristics across the group, depending on what is right for the company that we've bought. Understood. And there will be a lot of marketers listening to this now thinking we're going through an acquisition or our brands are changing. And you just alluded there to your change in strategy. Was it just the fact that the brands were getting lost in the Iris brand that meant that you had to do that? Or talk me through the process that you went back to the business to say, this has to change. I think it was, there was an element of that. And I mean, I'm probably, I'm, look, I'm being overly critical and overly probably um, sort of dramatic for, for effect on this stuff. But, you know, it genuinely did seem like some brands, you, know, you buy a brand or you buy a company for a number of things. You buy it for its exciting technology, uh, you buy it for its customer base and its staff, but you also typically buy it for the brand, you know, and the value it has in the market. And I think you have to take a bit of a view as to what the different balance of those is. So there are companies we bought that are really, we bought them for the technology because they're, they save, that saves us two years of development or whatever. I'm trying to plug that into something else. And then that's fine. And, and I think, you know, be open about that, at least internally, so you understand why you're doing it. But if you're buying something, like I said, like a, a SaaS, you know, we have, we have some really good cloud products that are quite young, quite exciting and dynamic and leading edge in terms of what they're doing. Then you know you have to think about the, and I've worked in SaaS companies, small SaaS startup SaaS companies, and, and you think about the nature of them, which is they're very dynamic, they're very customer intimate. You know they really tend to be very close to their customers, and they respond quickly, and they support their customers really well, and they and they develop you know in response to customers very fast. And customers have a lot of loyalty to that brand because they you know they, they, they really feel close to it, and I think. If you come along as a larger corporate and buy that, you've got to decide what do you want to, how do you want that to be going forward. But if you're buying it because it's exciting and innovative and it's got a great customer base and you want to grow that customer base, you've got to think about the impact of what you do with the the brand. And the brand is just in yeah, the, the name is just indicative of a lot of things. It's not just because you change the logo or don't change the logo that that, that changes everything. It's really what that says and how you then position it within the company. And I think, so with the bigger corporate brands that we bring in, we're tending to integrate them very tightly with our other other suites of applications. And, and you know, that that's a, a sort of indication of the fact that they're under our kind of corporate umbrella and very much part of those systems. But if they are more dynamic and we're buying them for the, you know, the leading edge innovation that they have in their particular sector, then, you know, not necessarily changing the brand or keeping the brand more distinct is saying another message really, which is that you're you know you're there to drive that innovation and actually learn from that innovation and also you know support it and, and give them the resources to make them successful. And from sort of a brand management perspective, because uh, I think I completely agree with the the nuance which you're sort of like approaching the integration of these companies, but having that sort of master corporate brand with with Iris and then giving that license for you know a sub brand to have its own distinct personality. Has that created any sort of headaches or problems for you? I'd be fascinated to know whether there's been any conflict. No, it's actually, it was actually accepted pretty well because I think it pointed out 
I mean, just in the same way as when I yeah, change the whole unit four brands into a single brand, I think people see the logic. I mean, because to me, it's kind of logical. You know, it's just you just need to think through, like I say, what is it you want to do with these companies? What is their strength, and what it, why are you acquiring them, and how are they best going to thrive within your organization? And and you know, and and look, you know, you look at the theory, and you look at the brands out there that are branded houses versus houses houses of brands and all of that you know you can see you can learn lessons from that absolutely you know I, I, I do in terms of kind of thinking behind that and also justifying it you know kind of comparing yourselves whether it's comparing yourself to a kind of Unilever house of brands or, or comparing yourself to a kind of an apple or something which is you know tend to be a very much a branded house I think um, just using that logic and taking people on that journey I, no, I've not had any massive battles, to be honest. Most people kind of accepted that it makes sense. And, you know, there, there had been issues with, as I say, some of the uh, the past activity we've done. You mentioned around emotion and the emotional connection to a brand. And I think that's quite an interesting one. When we're talking about balancing short-term business needs with long-term brand building, there's also emotion when people need short-term business results. Right. And typically one problem that marketers face is working with the business to help them think about things more holistically, take an umbrella view and think more strategically. How have you managed that internally in terms of the emotional side within the businesses that you've worked in? Interesting question. There's the emotion of kind of the brand, which is stuff that you can you know, you can communicate in, in your kind of branding and, and activity and even the way the way you you know articulate the brand. I think a bit like we were saying, you know, we've said you, you've got to, you know, brand and, and marketing and strategy has to be linked very tightly to business strategy. And you've got to decide as a business, what are you about? You know, are you, are you about customer intimacy? And is that important to you? Or is it that you're ruthlessly efficient and you're just the cheapest, cheapest, best product in the market or whatever it is that's important? If it is ruthless efficiency and the cheapest product in the market, then maybe that emotional side of things is not is not that important. But I think particularly in in B two B and in SaaS, particularly nowadays, I think that customer intimacy bit is really important. And therefore, you've got to be intimate with the customers as a vendor because you need to keep them paying their their subscription every month, you know, or every year or whatever it is. It's not that they just buy the product and you can kind of you know park them and move on to new business. You've constantly got to win their business every month. And it to complete. That's why SaaS completely changes the relationship with the customer, and therefore, emotion does. I think emotion becomes a bigger part of that that whole brand relationship with the market because you what you need customers. You want customers to love you and not just want you. You know, it's like um, not just need you. Sorry, it's something we talk about. Uh, you know, we talk about Iris. I talk about other companies. It's you know, accounting software is not necessarily somebody something people have a real passion for, and they need it, but they don't want it necessarily. But if you can make it a product, a product that's great and people really enjoy using it, but also you know, as a brand, they want to interact with you and they they enjoy that emotional side of it, then you become a brand that they they want to be part of as well as just you know have to. And this is where that intersection between B two B and B two C is quite prevalent, right? Because you want to come up with a story that engages with them on a human level as well as on a business level, which is something that crops up in many, many of our conversations. And it's obviously 
very, very important for B2B marketers to be very aware of? I think, as I said, SaaS, software as a service is absolutely, or anything as a service has changed B2B completely because you have to now have that consumer style relationship. You know, the thing with consumer marketing, if you're selling beans or Coca-Cola or whatever, is you've got to keep them coming back. So you want them to love you and engage with you and do that. You know, now in the, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago when we were selling million pound accounting systems or whatever to a company, you'd sell it once and then you knew they were locked into you for five years. They were never going to change because, you know, it's just a, a massive upheaval people to do that. So I'm not saying that you kind of, you know, didn't treat your customers well, but you didn't have that same kind of focus. And, you know, when you see the way that um, SaaS companies interact with their customers and they have customer success teams and all of that, you know, as I say, that's all about effectively you need them to keep buying from you every month to keep using that solution and, and keep, you know, hopefully increasing the use of that because you're getting that constant um, subscription revenue model. And I, I do think that has definitely changed the way B2B thinks, B2B marketing is sort of thought about. And so do you ever use that as a goal, get your customers to love you? We spoke there about how, you know, Coca-Cola or Heinz baked beans, you know, you, you need to have that real, real love, if you like. Do you feel that could work as a sort of an aspiration for B2B or actually that's just pushing it too far? Well, no, I think, well, I think it does. And, and if you think about it now, companies increasingly use NPS scores, for example, net promoter scores, you know, which is effectively saying, you only count a promoter of someone who is a kind of eight, nine or 10 who, you know, effectively is massively positive about you, loves you and is going to recommend you to their friend and family, you know. So, yeah, I do think you, know, you might not talk about in that language, but effectively, you know, things like NPS and those sort of customer satisfaction measures have become more and more a part of marketing and more key, you know, for us at NetSuite, they're a, they're a part of a, actually everybody's bonus in the company is dependent to some part on uh, on NPS scores. That's interesting. But I, I'm looking forward now to receiving a brief, you know, whether it's from you or whether it's, you know, from another uh, B2B brand and the brief saying, get our customers or our target audience to love us. That's the objective is just love. So <laughs> I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to being given that Too much challenge. hate, yeah. just love. <laughs> yes. I mean, like I say, whether you'll actually get it in that language, probably yeah. not. But, uh, <laughs> but it's effectively what it is. Yeah. Uh, like I said, the, the want and need bit, is you know for us at Iris a big part of our software of our, our solutions for accountants is around compliance. So effectively, we keep them out of jail. So we're a bit like insurance, and like nobody loves insurance, do they? You buy insurance because you have to because you, if your house burns down or you crash your car, you know you're covered. But you don't love it, therefore you shop around for the cheapest, and you tend to be quite promiscuous and you know keep shopping around. And I think. The challenge for us in that part of our, our market is to actually try to get people to to want us and not just to buy us because they have to. You know. There we go. That's what we will do. We will end promiscuity. So enough of the one night stands. <laughs> it's all about love is what we want to sort of drive them B2B marketing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Problem we're talking about is what was brand versus demand journey. Yeah? At the end of the day, brand is critical to actually to demand gen because at, look, you know, I've seen, I've seen this at places where if you go in and you haven't got any brand awareness in the market, you are just going to be sinking money into pay-per-click and, and very expensive demand gen channels because you've got no kind of inbound, no organic traffic coming to you. And so, and the way you, and that might be right short term, but to avoid having to keep that high level of cost and spend going forward, you need to build brand because that means you will then build a, an increasing level of 
inbound demand gen that will happen, you know, either without any spend or marketing activity or will just become much cheaper uh, in terms of cost per lead than it is if you've got no brand awareness. I think so. And I think that it's this really is sort of the crux in terms of us looking at the original problem that we had at hand, which is how do we balance that sort of short-term need in terms of fueling the business with that longer-term brand building. I think that's, we've kind of got to the central tension, which is that the business will often be pushing and pushing and pushing. And actually, it's all about going through that education process with the business in terms of where does brand building fit in and how does it fit almost within this idea of the value chain. And actually, if you invest in brand building up front, it has all of this material benefit throughout that sort of you know engagement with your sort of target audience all the way down to actually getting much, much better results from a sort of a demand gen perspective. So I think one of the really, really big learnings from me is that sort of importance of alignment and communication with the business and taking people in the business rather on that journey of educating them around sort of how brand building fits in the benefit and then being quite creative in terms of how you can build the business case and demonstrate that value. I think that I loved what you sort of talked about in terms of collating together all of the, the different anecdotes, you know, building that sort of coalition with sales and also having that bravery to actually put your neck on the line and say, this is the bets that I'm going to make and what brand building is going to deliver for us. Back me and trust me and you will see the benefits uh, longer term. And I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. Yeah. And another thing that, you know, it feels like to me is almost from a marketing perspective, we take the plan to the business and say, we've all fed into this and this is our tour of duty almost for three years and this is what we're all signing up to and obviously it might be a bit of pain in the short term but the gains in the long term far outweigh outweigh that pain so almost framing it as if it's that you know a three or five year tour of duty absolutely uh, you've just got to make sure you show people the the milestones along the way because they're not going to wait three or five years for results so again it was that part that i talked about about predicting what you're going to see, look, you know, if we do this for so long, after six months, we will see an increase in web traffic. We'll see a decrease in cost per lead, for example, which is actually something in nine months that Iris have managed to achieve as part of that kind of brand building is that our cost per lead goes down because we are getting that inbound, unprompted kind of organic traffic as, a, as well as the kind of paid for. Absolutely. The two are not, and I mean, this is almost our fault for how we frame the question, but it's, they're not mutually exclusive. It's not a sort of binary, you either do one or you do the other. They absolutely can coexist depending on sort of the, the split in real time, but absolutely they are sort of demand gen and they're serving the business needs absolutely feeds from brand building and one feeds into the other. And I think really sort of that education piece about how that fits together. And I mentioned earlier, the sort of like the value chain, I think is absolutely vital to reconceptualizing how it's viewed in, in businesses and resolving that tension, which clearly does exist. Yeah, absolutely. And then look, at the end of the day as well, and we didn't say this earlier, really, but there isn't always a direct, explicit distinction between brand building and brand and demand gen. Yeah, Today, absolutely. You, know, you think about you attend an event with a big booth, there's an element of brand there, but also you're going to generate leads on the stand, hopefully. Absolutely. You, know, you put adverts online, that's brand, but also you hope that people are going to click through. You know, if you frame them right, they're going to click through and follow up and generate leads. So I do think maybe the boundaries between those two activities are definitely blurred. 
Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's quite a nice point to end on is we're going to redefine the paradigm there. So yeah, thank you very Absolutely. much, David. Good. You're welcome. Enjoyed the chat. Thanks, David. B2B Marketing Solved is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more about us, head to allen-agency.com and make sure to search for Marketing Solved in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss any future golden nuggets from the biggest names in B2B Marketing. On behalf of the team here at Allen, Thanks for listening.